I had a very strange childhood. Had the worst case any doctor had ever seen. My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. Collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body. Yet by age 20, we have less than already half what we've begun with, and we're losing more and more at a rate that only gets worse as we age. So how do we use diet, supplementation, and lifestyle to reverse this trend? Our guest today is a doctor of pharmacy, a clinical researcher, and no stranger to the podcast. I think this is your fifth appearance, actually. Your new book focuses on the overlooked role of collagen and the amino acid glycine for optimal health, longevity, and vitality. This is the story of the collagen cure with Dr. James D. Nick Lantonio. Doc, great to have you on again. Um, Listen, the last time you were actually here, we spoke about what the new book is because five times in, I always ask you this, and you said it might be sugar cravings, it might be even a cookbook, but you went with collagen instead. Why'd you go that route? So I actually, um, I have been researching collagen for a really long time. Back when I was 26 years old, I was bench pressing, not even super heavy. It was probably like 80, 85% of my one rep max and ended up tearing my left pectoralis tendon. And lo and behold, tendons are mostly collagen, right? So that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of basically trying to support my own collagen health. Like, how do I build myself up from losing basically 90% of my strength um, (laughs) in regards to bench pressing? Um, And so that really, I had, I've done research on collagen for a really long time. And it was sort of in the back of my, you know, bank account, so to speak, in the back of the database. And and so I just kind of said, you know, collagen sort sort of catching on now, maybe I should put a book out about it. And that's really where it kind of stemmed from. It's definitely catching on. There's so much uh, out there that that's really collagen powders in general are becoming very big, almost, I would say, trendy, but a good thing, probably. But I want to kind of go with, how do you know if you're collagen deficient? Are we all somewhat collagen deficient as we go along? Uh, Is that something, is there a test we can do to kind of figure that out? That's a good question. There's not like one single test that's going to say, okay, you're collagen deficient. But there have been really good studies that have looked at both collagen content in bone and, and in skin. And they're very clear that if you're on a traditional Western diet, that essentially you start to lose about 8% of your collagen every decade, starting at the age of 20. Um, at least that's what the, the collagen studies in skin have shown. And so by the time you're you know, 75, you've essentially lost about half of the collagen in your skin. And so most of us really are not, unless you're supplementing or unless you are consuming very high collagen content bone broths, which most are not, you'll know if you put a bone broth in the fridge and it basically solidifies that gelatin is the collagen content. So unless you're doing one of those two things, you're, you're probably, I don't want to say deficient, but you're certainly not uh, having optimal collagen uh, turnover. What is it about the bone broths you get in stores that are missing that? Because they're all like refrigerated. They don't usually have that gelatinous part to it. And most people believe if they're taking a you know well-known brand off the shelves that they're getting some collagen, but it doesn't seem like there's much. Right. So essentially, you have to use collagenous meats mm. and high collagen bones in order to actually form a lot of collagen in the actual stew or broth itself. So unless you're using things like ham hocks, turkey necks, drumsticks, um, and, and certain, and a lot of bone marrow, 
you're really not going to get a lot of collagen in that bone broth. You know, you mentioned that that we used to eat from, you know, nose to tail, the, the whole right. animal, whereas now we absolutely throw most of that away. There right. is this kind of, you know, a resurgence of organ meats and everything else. And you could purchase tendons, ligaments, and things like that. Do you see really optimal health diet, including that more and more? Whereas in the past, I was completely cut out. You could just say grass-fed meat, right? That's all you would right. do. But now I think you kind of have to, if you're looking at optimal health and diet, include those things. Do you agree? hundred percent agree for numerous reasons. One, the main amino acid in collagen is called glycine. And when the glycine formation pathway was first forming, and this was about 580 million years ago, its synthesis never increased based on body weight of a mammal. So essentially it started out in small vertebrates and it never really improved over 500 million years. And so essentially glycine is considered a non-essential amino acid because we can synthesize it, but it's really a conditionally essential amino acid. In other words, the amount that we actually form, it's its one of the only substances that its synthesis is not actually based on its need. It's, its synthesis is based on the need for methylated folate. And unfortunately, the need for methylated folate does not supersede or isn't higher than the need for glycine in the body. And so we can get glycine through collagen and we can also get it through supplementation. So by consuming and why I, why big back to the point of why I do think it's important to include collagenous either foods or supplementation is because we are at a big glycine deficit and not just a suboptimal intake, but let me give you an example. So studies have shown that if people are on a low protein diet, they don't even synthesize enough glycine to support basic metabolic functions to live. In other words, eventually you are going to basically, essentially those vital functions to live will cease to actually work if you are on a low protein intake uh, chronic inflammation also increases our needs for glycine and any type of gastrointestinal damage, which so many of us are suffering from IBS, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, the list goes on and on. So the point is, is that collagen is a good, is a decent source of glycine. It gives about 25 to 30% of it is going to be glycine. And so just supporting that pathway is so important. And because we only synthesize about three grams of glycine. And that goes into the formation of vitally important substances like creatine, like glutathione, like heme, which allows us to basically move oxygen, uh, you know, oxygenate our tissues. And so we're only supporting, we're barely supporting those metabolic functions with the amount that we synthesize. And the typical American diet will then maybe provide one to three grams of glycine on top of that. But the problem is, is there's many things that deplete glycine in the diet. Benzoic acid is one example which is in, it's basically a food preservative. So it's in, you know, most processed foods, the chlorogenic content in your coffee, half of that turns into benzoic acid, that benzoic acid will bind to glycine and you will eliminate the glycine via hipparic acid. So there's a lot of things now that are depleting our glycine status. Like we covered inflammation, gastrointestinal issues, further increasing our need for collagen intake. So that's really why I do think it's important to get a lot more glycine and we can kind of talk about how much more and, and more collagen in the diet. Yeah. One of the things I, I really appreciated it, it didn't just say, you know, increase your collagen intake this book. It really got to all the other surrounding pieces that worked synergistically. And glycine was, you know, the hero of the story in many ways. 
But I was also interested that copper was a big one there in that. Can you go into that relationship of copper and collagen? Sure. So copper is an essential mineral. We, we can't synthesize them. We need to consume enough of it in the diet. And, and we're probably about half the population is literally deficient in copper. And the, the best test for that is called a leukocyte copper test. It's, it's a white blood cell level test of, of your copper levels. And that's been associated with like increases in ischemic heart disease and atherosclerosis and things like that. But essentially, copper is an essential cofactor in an enzyme called lysyl oxidase. And lysyl oxidase is what cross-links type 1 collagen. So essentially, there are three strands of polypeptides that are wound together to form collagen, and they're interlinked and cross-linked within the actual peptide itself, but also connecting the three peptides by a a copper-dependent enzyme called lysyl oxidase. So that's what gives type 1 collagen its strength. And that's why type 1 collagen gram for gram is actually stronger than steel. So we know that collagen is the most abundant protein in our body. It makes up 30 to 35% of all of our protein. So copper is helping to strengthen. And most of it is type 1. Most probably around 80% of all of that collagen is type 1. And so copper is what helps to give you know, 80% of the 35% of our protein, aka collagen, most of its strength. Collagen itself is usually associated with anti-aging skin. I think that's where a lot of people uh, focus on, but there are such vital other needs for collagen as well. Can you go into the systems or possibly the diseases that may occur due to a collagen deficiency, just so we set really that importance. Because again, I don't want people being just on the vanity side of it that I want to get rid of crow's feet. So yeah, collagen can absolutely help that. But what else is there we should really be kind of focusing on that may result out of those collagen deficiencies? Before I address that, uh, there's one question that I would love to address first so that that would just kind of get it off the table. So a lot of people believe that taking exogenous collagen is a waste of money because they know that the collagen will get broken down into amino acids and then your body utilizes those amino acids to form collagen. So I constantly get this question, why do I need to take a collagen supplement? Number one is the collagen peptides, they're not all broken down into amino acids. We actually absorb intact many of those peptides and those peptides can actually directly get into the site of action, whether it be the skin, whether it be in joints, and they themselves can stimulate our own collagen synthesis. In other words, if you want to increase your collagen synthesis, you take collagen peptides. Okay. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second important factor is collagen is high in amino acids that we do not get in a high amount in the diet. So the main building blocks of collagen are glycine, proline and hydroxyproline. Those three amino acids are lacking in the diet and they make up about 50% of our collagen content. So by taking a collagen supplement, you are also giving yourself the building blocks that are literally needed to form collagen. So that is an important basically piece of information to understand. And I think now we can move forward and talk about, you know, the benefits of collagen supplements and why they actually have benefits based on those two mechanisms of action. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to let's say health, one of the biggest issues that Americans are suffering with is obesity. And that directly contributes to osteoarthritis and basically pain in joints. 
And so collagen supplements have been shown in people with osteoarthritis or in general, just general joint pain to improve joint pain, to increase the uh, the stimulation of collagen synthesis really at the site of action in the joints themselves as well. So that's probably the group that would most likely derive um, a large amount of benefits. But Aging is hallmarked by a lack of collagen because our organs are high in collagen. So your organs will literally start getting smaller and less strong. Um, scurvy, bleeding gums is literally a deficiency of collagen. So your gum health is important when it comes to collagen. Bones, um, not a lot of people think about bone health because we think that that being down the line and, and when we're older, but half of your bone is protein and something around like 80% of all of that protein is literally collagen. So your collagen is determining like 40% of literally the entire makeup of your bone. And so it's really a mesh of collagen combined with minerals. So bone strength and bone health, right? And the bone marrow is where we produce all of like our immune system and blood cells and things like that. So it'll affect that as well. And simply the by being a supplier of glycine, we can go through all the the health benefits of glycine, but essentially glycine was tested or started to be tested by clinicians in patients back in the early 1900s. Patients with mus- certain um, forms of muscular dystrophy had dramatic benefits with glycine. So glycine helps with skeletal muscle health. And then later on, clinicians started using it in psychosis in schizophrenic patients, um, even upwards of 60 to 80 grams of glycine for one to two years. We have clinical studies showing safety and efficacy. And so collagen obviously provides glycine. Glycine is a really interesting one in that it also impacts the brain, correct? I mean, you just said the psychiatric size, but even more so on brain health in general. Yeah, it's it's called an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So Mm. it's not just an amino acid, and it's not just the main amino acid forming collagen, it's literally a neurotransmitter as well in the brain, an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it helps with calmness. It helps to decrease core body temperature so we can sleep better. Um, it even improves the absorption of certain um, minerals like sodium and water. So it's good for hydration as well. Awesome. And from food sources, let's not go into supplementation just yet of that, but from food sources, what are we looking at that give you the highest amounts of glycine? Essentially, any food that's going to give you collagen is going to give you the highest amounts of glycine. So that would be sort of like what we covered before in the bone broth formation of collagen collagenous meats. Um, That would be um, bone marrow, turkey necks, drumsticks, um, salmon skin, things like that. Now, getting into the supplementation, because obviously we're we're not getting enough just from diet, um, as you mentioned, but... You know, looking at the the supplement market right now, a lot of these collagen powders I've heard use bleached extract collagen from the bovine hide. Is that a safe way go, about going? Are, are there less toxic methods to extract high quality collagen? So it depends on what type of collagen you're looking for. So most, let's say, type one collagens are they use bovine hide, and then a marine source will use basically just the discarded fish, you know, basically what you don't use regarding the flesh, which doesn't mean that it's bad. You're getting, you know, the the scales, the fish skin, the bones, you know, so even though it's quote unquote discarded, that's really all the good parts that you're looking for. So some people, if they're concerned with the extraction um, for the hide, they'll, they'll lean more towards marine collagen, but the hide gives you a little more type three compared to marine. 
Um, but the marine typically has a lower molecular weight and is absorbed better. So there's kind of benefits to kind of combining both, to be fair. You you can get uh, sort of collagens that are uh, grass-fed, that don't use pesticides, herbicides, that um, will give you an actual a third-party test for heavy metals as well. So just if you're concerned about the sourcing or, or the contamination, you can just ask for what's called a certificate of analysis and quality companies can can uh, will will provide that. Yeah, it's all about the COA. I know that in uh, production yeah. of of uh, you know uh, supplements. There, um, right. what would you be stacking with that collagen to really make it the most efficient? You know, we we talked about like glycine, copper, vitamin C. Is there a certain kind of stack that you would do with your collagen to truly make it bioavailable, make it as efficient as possible? So I combine my type one collagen, which I do actually get multiple sources. I, mm. I do the, the bovine hide. I do use the the marine. And you mix uh, that together? Yeah. Well, I just buy it as a multi-collagen. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I'll add, uh, well, the product that I take has eggshell membrane in it. It's a multi-collagen from Ancient Nutrition. And then I also will add what's called type two collagen. So Type 1 collagen is good for bone and skin health. Type 2 collagen is a little bit better for joints because that's what cartilage is made up of. So it gives you a little bit of extra benefit in regards to joint health. So I'll add about 1 to 2 grams of type 2 collagen, 500 milligrams of eggshell membrane, about 90 milligrams of vitamin C, and then 10 grams of type 1 uh, hydrolyzed collagen. And the timing of this is important. Right. You don't want to just take collagen when you're being sedentary. You want to have some type of stimulus that's going to send those collagen peptides um, to the skin, to the joints. And what will do that is increase in blood flow. So if you work, if you take it prior to uh, or after an exercise, that's going to help sort of drive those collagen peptides um, to the site of action better. What about during an infrared sauna? Because one of the sections of the book talks about infrared light and collagen synthesis. Yeah, if you're out in the, walking in the sun, um, that's going to help stimulate that increased blood flow and actual infrareds to help stimulate collagen synthesis itself. So that is also a good time as well. Outside, if you're sprinting up a hill or something like that, you take it before or after, that's a perfect time to take it. Is exercise at all, even strenuous hit exercise at all, depleting collagen you know you're taking a lot of kind of hits you're you're right. really stressing things out the ligaments themselves are somewhat you know beat up where collagen kind of resides is there any data on yeah that? the need for collagen will dramatically increase um, based on activity and that's why really anytime you are heavily active that's the time when you want to take about 10 grams of collagen so sort of going back to um glycine the, the Melendez and colleagues back in 2008 and 2009, they did some really cool experiments and they took and they looked and they did their estimates on glycine needs for optimal collagen turnover. And they used the most conservative estimates that they could use. They took a sedentary 154 pound adult and they estimated based on a really high recycle rate of glycine based on daily collagen turnover, how much glycine would we need for optimal collagen turnover. And using all of those very conservative you know, um, markers, they came up with that we need 12 grams of glycine per day for optimal collagen turnover. Now, if glycine has a recycle rate closer to cysteine, which is only an 85% recycle rate, then our need for glycine for optimal collagen turnover goes to 36 grams. So we have a range. We don't really know. 
It could be as low as 12 grams. It could be as high as 36, which is probably why psychiatric patients have been shown to get so much benefit and no side effects for 60 grams because our need for it is so high. And so you have this range. And again, we only consume one to three grams in our diet. So there's a lack of about 10 grams as a conservative estimate, right? And so that's why all these studies that have looked at glycine um, starting in the 1900s, muscular dystrophy, going to psychosis. And now we have some really cool studies looking at metabolic syndrome, inflammation, blood glucose, and even longevity in animal studies now showing all these cool benefits with glycine supplementation. It's interesting because you think, and I'm I'm a big proponent of, you know, stick with nature, try to get as much out of your diet. You know, I'm I'm don't do as many supplements, right? But you learn more and more about the data and you say our diet just isn't cutting it anymore. And we're more stressed and are depleted of key nutrients more and more. Do you right. see like in a future, even generations next, that supplementation will be absolutely necessary for almost everyone? I mean, already sort of is, right? You're, you're talking about this right now. So it's sort of the case of if you're a purist, you sort of look at it and say, well, if we didn't get this through evolutionary times, then A, how could it benefit me? And B, why would I even need it? But the fact is, is that evolution doesn't care about your longevity. All you had to do was pass on your genes and that's it. So basically consuming a diet from an evolutionary perspective doesn't mean that it, is, it gives you every single nutrient or even non-essential nutrient that could potentially have benefits. So that's kind of like, I've even had this mindset shift too. Like basically I was kind of skeptical of numerous different supplements, but as you research, you can find that there are certain links in our own metabolism. There's, there's, there's this breakdown in our glycine synthesis. And so we simply, this is one that I think most people would benefit from supplementing. Why is it that so many doctors and you know health experts in quotes uh, are kind of like really against supplementation in general? You know, there are so many articles out there. You don't need it. Multivitamins are bullshit like this. Like, don't take that stuff. And even doctors, when you go to them, you know, they'll ask you what you're on. Say, don't do that. Just take these pills. There might be interactions with it. Is it the lack of education? Is it the lack of actual, you know, schooling and nutrition that kind of guides doctors to try and actually, I would say, get people off of supplements? I think one, it's that some supplements make more sense than others. Mm. Number two, it's definitely a lack of certain knowledge. Not many people have, have spent years researching each supplement to understand what's an optimal intake, which takes a ton of time to do. Um, three, a lot of people believe that if it comes out in the urine, it has no effect in the body, but that's simply not true. In order for a substance to reach your urine, urine is just filtered blood. In other words, you had to have absorbed that. It got in your system. It has to be in your blood circulation. It could be acting on receptors. It could be acting on organs. It could be acting on your immune system. And then you excrete out the urine. So when we take vitamin C, yes, it comes out in the urine, but so does water. So does salt. That doesn't mean that none of these things have any benefits. So but this is, I'm telling you, this is a, that's one of the biggest misconceptions of why a lot of people think you don't need to take a multivitamin. You're just paying for expensive pee. Well, you are, but there are effects that happen before you eliminate it out in the urine. Couldn't you say the same about most drugs in general that you're taking, like expensive, yeah. you know, pharmaceutical drugs? They're literally found in our tap water now because so many people are peeing them out. So it's, right. it's no different. So you can't really knock a supplement and then say, go on this drug. Everything we ingest, we take in some, but we also excrete some. 
So right. it's it's not exactly wasteful if it's an even playing field on everything you ingest. Exactly. That alone is something I feel like a lot of people don't understand and will point to that of why you shouldn't take supplements. But all the data here that you're showing, it's absolutely necessary, especially when it comes to collagen. Now, looking at it from the perspective of skin, which most people see and are very visual beings, what do you feel about topical collagen creams and things like that? Basically, if you're looking for something topically, you, you know, you have, there's a lot of evidence for vitamin A, retinol, mm. um, top, topically, but of course, ingesting too, vitamin A is important. Would a topical collagen supplement work? I don't really think so. Um, you build collagen from the inside out um, when you, regarding an actual exogenous source of collagen, whether it be topical, whether it be ingestion. So you, the studies are very clear and there are many studies looking at taking a collagen supplement orally improving and reducing wrinkles, improving the suppleness of the skin, um, reducing um, aging, the looks just of aging, crow's feet, all these things have been shown to be improved by, by taking collagen supplementation. Yeah, I've always truly believed that beauty starts from the inside out. It's not what you put on the skin. You almost want to reduce that maybe sometimes. A lot of times there's so many chemicals in these cosmetics right. and everything else, and you want to focus on what's going into your body. Uh, with that said, though, photobiomodulation, like infrared light, red light itself, especially laser, you know, LEDs that can penetrate a little bit deeper than just something topically, that has been shown, right, right to actually increase collagen production in the area. 100%. And you're correct, too. The fact that low-level laser therapy, which is um, much you know, more concentrated, you can use a lot more light in a given specific site. And you basically, you can hit, you know, numerous, uh, you know, 40 different lights at once and you go to the next area, but yeah, absolutely. Infrared and red light both stimulate the, uh, your body's own uh, synthesis of collagen. So for those out there, they're saying like, yes, I want to increase my collagen production mainly for those anti-aging pieces. And I'd rather do that than Botox, let's say, or something like that. What would be that whole stack right there? It would be absolutely ingesting collagen, right? It would be some photobiomodulate laser. What else would you be looking to do? The other thing you want to do too is you want to make sure your vitamin C mm. intake is optimized because vitamin C stimulates the messenger RNA in our own cells that make collagen. So our fibroblasts for skin, our um, cartilage cells, our bone cells, uh, which are called osteoblasts. And they basically, vitamin C stimulates the messenger RNA in those cells to synthesize collagen. So you also want to make sure you're getting good amounts of copper, which really means like liver, because that also gives you vitamin A, which is important for collagen synthesis as well. Um, so like a half an ounce of liver a day or, you know, a few ounces a week is more than enough to sort of keep your your copper and your vitamin A. And um, it does have vitamin C in it too, uh, more optimized. But obviously citrus is where you get your... Yeah, yeah. Lots of that, even uh, what red peppers and things like that have high levels. Yeah. But as far as liver goes, so many people really dislike eating liver. How do you yeah. feel about liver pills in general? Because I've heard from some that, you know, it's it's a lower quality usually than a fresh liver, let's say, uh, you know, that you're going to eat. But would you advise supplementing if you're truly against liver? I say mix it in to other meat and you won't taste it, but... Uh, yeah, I think exactly. I would prefer to see people figure out a way to consume fresh liver. And most people, if you just do an organ blend, you just consume it with like 75% muscle meat, then usually it's much more tolerable or you figure out the spices, you season it well, um, and it, you really won't taste it that bad. 
do liver capsules work? That's the question. Yep. Now we don't really have, I don't think there's any clinical studies saying that the current liver capsules that are out um, have any type of effect. We just don't have the data. I think there have been old studies. I do recall one study back in like the 1950s uh, that was trying to tease out like, you know, nutrient deficiencies and they supplemented people with liver capsules. And I think you do get some of the nutrients, but it's, you know, you do get more side effects. A lot of people get migraines and headaches from taking those capsules. I myself have taken them and got, I got, I got them uh, the worst migraine. I don't ever get those. So I think when you like dehydrate a liver and you kind it's already such a concentrated organ and you concentrate even more into this like little powder, it's not the same thing anymore, right? It's completely different. And so it just comes down to a tolerability perspective from both the sense of the supplement, but also do you tolerate eating fresh liver, but always you want to try to do fresh, fresh cooked liver um, before anything else. Yeah. Hey, listen, if the liver king could do it and eat those raw livers all the time, <laughs> although we know that wasn't all natural him now, but uh, you know, I think uh, most people could find a way to add a little bit into their diets and mix it in. Um, so yeah. I'm totally on board with you also with that idea. Like when people ask, can I take, sure, you could take capsules and things like that, but why not? Like, and especially with something like liver, it's just so dense. It is, you know, such a superfood. Well, the thing is too, is, okay, so you need, let's say you, you don't need a lot of it. Like even five grams a day would be, would be tremendous compared to what most people are getting. You can literally cut up cooked liver and put it in a capsule. There's your yeah. liver capsule. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And it doesn't really matter about source either, right? As long as the the quality of the meat, you could say, in a sense, isn't adultered, it's, you know, from a better butcher shop or something. But whether it's chicken, you know, bison, beef, it's it's all very nutrient dense, correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, we always strive for our, you know, pastured, 100% grass fed, finished uh, animal sourcing of liver. But yeah, I mean, Beef liver is, is going to have more copper than chicken liver, but if you're not consuming anything, eating chicken livers is better than nothing. Yeah. Moving on to another one uh, that I, I just wanted to ask you about, because I've heard about this, but collagen injections, meaning actually injecting collagen into certain joints and things like that. Is there any benefit to that? Is there any data on that? It's very new. Yeah. Um, most of the research is on injecting actually hyaluronic acid um, into the joints. There, we do have some decent studies on that and also using hyaluronic acid for skin. Um, and that's actually an additional supplement where there's some good data that 200 milligrams of hyaluronic acid per day does improve skin health and, and collagen health as well. But whether injecting collagen, I think it, I think that's pretty new. I haven't seen any good studies on that. And if you're ingesting collagen, you're taking the supplements or anything, are there any contraindications or uh, an amount you should not go over where it makes no sense? So the only thing, the only, let's say, potential downside to higher doses of collagen, and that when I say that, that that's really around 20 grams of collagen or more, is that there will be a significant increase in what's called urinary oxalate, Okay. But let's and everyone gets freaked out. Um, anytime anything increases oxalate in the body, people will just instantly demonize it. But you can't just look at urinary oxalate. Is is it doing something else in the urine that would prevent oxalate crystals from forming? And it turns out that glycine increases citrate in the urine as well. And so when they give glycine to animals, it prevents urinary calcium oxalate crystals from forming, even though there's an increase in urinary oxalate. So there is a theoretical increased risk of 
let's say kidney stones, when you start consuming 20 grams of collagen or more, it's really not at 10 grams. It's, it's a very minimal. But when you start consuming 20 or more, there are, you're sort of creeping up to the level of uh, the level that we see occurring in kidney stone formers. That doesn't mean that you're going to form a kidney stone because now maybe you have more citrate in the urine as well, offsetting that increase because of the glycine in there. But that's something that people do need to be aware of. If you're going to start consuming 20 grams or more and you have, and you are a calcium oxalate former already, be wary. Now, we talked about the foods that you can use, such as the bone broth, anything that that's gelatinous to increase collagen. But what about things that deplete? Are there diets, low protein diet, let's say, that are going to put you in a depleted state of collagen? So coffee is something that will deplete uh, glycine because the chlorogenic acid in coffee, half of that forms the benzoic acid. And then benzoic acid combines with glycine to form hipparic acid. And then you excrete the glycine as hipparic acid. So for every seven ounce cup of coffee, you are excreting 100 milligrams of glycine just from the benzoic acid pathway. Now we know that also, I mean, coffee is great, but coffee does reduce the absorption of almost everything. Like mm -hmm. almost every mineral or vitamin does get somewhat lowered when you consume coffee. Coffee is great, but you just got to offset some of these, you know, nutrients that are being excreted or absorbed less because of the coffee. We talked about the benzoic acid that are in processed foods, um, certain processed lemonades and then um, iced teas and things like that, that will increase the loss of glycine. Um, certain mayonnaises as well will contain that. Certain foods too, um, cinnamon, but most people aren't using enough to, for it to really matter that will form benzoic acid. But really it's the inflammation it's the activity level that starts really increasing your need for glycine because there's two twofold. Your need for glutathione grows up dramatically when you have higher amounts of inflammation because glutathione is the master antioxidant. And glycine is a rate limiting amino acid in the formation of glutathione. So cysteine is the first one, but if cysteine levels are good, then it comes down to glycine as a rate limiting amino acid in its formation. And then also, Inflammatory proteins like C-reactive protein are actually literally built out of glycine. So when you start producing more inflammatory proteins, your need for glycine increases. And then just an increase in body mass, an increase in activity level, an increase in, let's say, um, sun exposure will all increase your need for collagen. Let's go back to coffee really quick because I know a lot of people take their morning coffee with a collagen mixer or creamer even sometimes, right? They make those. Is yeah. that actually a smart idea? Because from what you're saying, it's, you know, coffee already is depleting and yeah, you're putting it in. But is that the smart idea? Or would you supplement separately before, after, again, maybe while you're going to be going to the gym or something like that to make up for it? What, what do you then recommend for coffee drinkers? So it's kind of actually good news for coffee drinkers in this aspect. So if you are a high coffee drinker, it's really the amount that you're consuming that's the problem, not really the timing per se. So if you're consuming, let's say four cups or more, you're starting to deplete a good amount of your glycine. If you're one to two cups, 100, 200 milligrams of glycine might not be a big, that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. um, but if your diet's already low, that deficit could actually be a big deal. It's comes down to, are you consuming your coffee close to time of exercise? Because if you're not, then it's, you're sort of wasting some of that collagen that could have really been, you know, driven into the skin and driven into the joints better through the increased blood flow from the exercise. Now, here's the biggest question I get. 
is the heat of the coffee going to destroy the collagen? It better be really, really, really hot because collagen doesn't start degrading until you hit a temperature of 302 degrees Fahrenheit and nobody's consuming 302 degrees Fahrenheit. I hope not. No, (laughs) no, that's, that's really good to know because I, I do find people are a little bit confused by that, especially when they have these kind of collagen products that they kind of just dump into things here and there, it seems like, and not really knowing is if that's the best way. So it kind of doesn't make as much sense to put collagen within your coffee if you're just going to be sitting around afterwards, you know, and you're only consuming one or two cups, let's say, and you're at your desk and you just do that. You'd rather wait till a pre-workout or pre-going outside activity of something, take the collagen then with water, whatever else. Right. And the reason is, is because you can't think of collagen protein like whey protein or, you know, casein or whatever, because skeletal muscle has good blood flow. The collagen in your body does not have good blood flow. Tendons, ligaments, these things don't have good blood flow. So you want to utilize something that's going to increase the blood flow to the tendons and ligaments to derive the collagen to to that area, as well as skin. Skin doesn't have that great of blood flow either until you start exercising. Then you start really driving blood flow to the skin to dump heat. So that's really why you, you are collagen is fairly expensive so might as well optimize the timing of it and so try to take it probably ideally an hour before exercise because it's in your system and then the blood is going to just push it right to where it needs to go but post-exercise is okay too it's certainly better than just taking it um where you have a two three hour gap where you're not exercising so let me throw a hypothetical and i've had some questions about this like a pre and post out a workout kind of routine of sorts and so if you did it an hour before let's say you split your collagen in half you took half of what your daily need is in powder and supplement before you go into the gym and afterwards part of your routine let's say is to go into the infrared sauna afterwards and you took the rest at that point while you're sitting in the sauna for a period of time would that be beneficial then 100 percent. that's yeah. a great way now, the other side of that is what What about cold therapy? Let's say taking a plunge post-workout and doing it that way. Is that also beneficial? Because there's, there's kind of mixed consensus on, you know, a true post-workout and jumping in and taking nutrients where blood flow gets, you know, sent to the organs and not to the tissue. Right. I don't know. I'd have to see studies on exactly how long you're sitting in the cold because it's going to depend and how cold the water actually is and how hot you are before you get in. Because there are some studies where if you shock the body with super, super cold water, you're sort of vasoconstricting, right? The AVAs, the arterial venous anastomoses, and maybe you're actually heating up the internal organs a little bit for a li- for like a short period of time. Of course, you're going to drop, you're going to go hypothermic eventually, right? Yeah. Um, your body just doesn't shut off all the cold that's coming in. Personally, I don't think you would want to because... Uh, you're going to shut down the, again the, the the blood circulation, the blood flow from the heat. It would be better to go into like a hot bath, you know, if you want to drive more collagen into the skin and things like that. To be fair, yeah. Um, and then the the other thing that we you would at you had asked about um, what depletes glycine or what increases our need of glycine. It's going to be a high animal protein diet because high animal protein is high in methionine, and for every gram of methionine that you consume, you really want to have close to a gram of glycine because methionine increases glycine need. And so we used to think that calorie restriction benefit uh, comes from methionine restriction, 
And indeed it does. But we found out that restricting methionine and protein doesn't lead to longevity in humans. It actually has the opposite effect. So how do you offset that? Well, we find out then we don't do methionine restriction in animal studies, but we give them glycine and you get a huge up to 30 to 40% increase in longevity when you do that. And so the best way to offset, let's say a high animal based diet and the harms of the high methionine is to supplement with glycine. So we know that we have to supplement with glycine. Collagen is is necessary. We have to eat more animal animal uh, meats in general. But what about other biohacks that are out there that we could introduce? People always love. We talked about the infrared stuff. Uh, there's red light therapy. Other types of you know photobiomodulation. Everyone has their juve or whatever up and you know is sitting in front of it now. Other hacks people could implement to help themselves with collagen. Yeah, two other hacks would be micro needling, which everyone's into to increase the stimulation. That's what's happening is as you micro needle, the body then stimulates the synthesis of collagen. And so that's why there's benefits afterward. And then also um, blood flow restriction actually has numerous benefits beyond just increasing, you know, potential collagen synthesis. But um, that's another one too, where you sort of you sort of, you don't fully restrict blood flow. Um, it's, it's a partial restriction of blood flow. And then you do that while you're exercising. Um, and then you take off the restriction during the set and you basically, you get better gains with a lower amount of weight. And you're also going to get better collagen gains as well doing that. Do you have a recommended one? Because I have like really cheap Amazon ones that I use, but there are the like, you know, really like expensive ones that pump up to a certain amount. I just strap it on and you don't cut off circulation. It's not like I'm struggling to put it on and off and it's like my arms are going blue. But yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, $10, whatever, just a strap that goes around there. Um, Is that good enough or do you recommend going for the true kind of BFR like uh, upgraded ones? Yeah, I have a, a Katsu. So I have yeah, the Katsu. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, that's the most uh, reliable brand, in my opinion. And they, they come with two arms, two legs. You typically don't ever want to do two arms and two legs at the same time mm-hmm. constricting. You know what I mean? You usually do either both arms or just one arm or both legs. You don't really want to do all four limbs. What's interesting, too, is there's applications outside of just collagen synthesis and athletic performance, there's really cool, it's called ischemic preconditioning. Like you have a heart attack, but you're still alive. And what they do is they've done many studies on this um, where they will constrict the arm or they will basically constrict some blood flow to the leg, like a tourniquet style. And they do that for like three to five minutes and then they let it go. They release it for a couple of minutes and they do that three to five times when you do that, you precondition the heart to ischemia and there's an upregulation of all these sort of defense mechanisms so that when you reperfuse the heart, a lot of people don't realize that when you reperfuse an ischemic artery that can kill someone because there's a huge now rush of blood flow and oxidative bursts that occurs. So by preconditioning, there's been studies showing that that blood flow restriction can basically increase the survival um, after a heart attack, which is kind of cool. Really cool. And I mean, your your background is uh, cardiovascular research. I got to yeah. ask this. Any thoughts on, you know, what's going on with athletes with cardiac arrest? Let's say Damar Hamlin, right? I've watched yeah. a lot of football, never saw anything like that. And that's, you know, it could just be an offshoot, but you're seeing a little bit more from what I understand in soccer players in Europe and everything. Just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah. So my thought more shifts towards um, the increase in sort of like Achilles tendon ruptures and mm. there's up to a tenfold increase. Like we have really good data on from Europe as well, 
showing that just basically over the last 30 years, there's been around a two to tenfold increase in all of these tendinopathies and injuries from tendons and ligaments, which comes back to probably two things. Uh, one, uh, probably not getting enough collagen. Mm-hmm. And two, the switch over to turf from regular grass is probably dramatically increasing, uh, you know, the ruptures of the Achilles tendons. So I think there are some studies looking at uh, mRNA imaging of the hearts after, um, you know, things that we won't mention, right? Yes. Um, yes. That, that, may increase, that may increase inflammation in the heart. But for sort of, you know, outside of that, whether there's a link between that particular case or just was it a bad hit? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to speculate. No, no, it's never good to speculate. It's always good just to ask some questions around and try to get to the root cause of it because, yes, yeah. it seems that it's becoming more, but you can't ever speculate. And I agreed with you. That's what I wrote in my new last newsletter to say, hear my thoughts. I don't know. Like, we don't know. Right. It's great to ask questions. We shouldn't be told to shut up if we ask them, but we can't, you know, directly say it was this, it was that. Right. And we wish him best in speedy recovery, of course. But even looking at that kind of impact of collagen, let's say, not just on ligaments, could that improve cardiovascular? Could that improve cases of, you know, myocarditis? Well, here's what's interesting. So we know that the lining of the stomach and the lining of the heart are made up of collagen. So the lining of the arteries can potentially be improved with collagen supplementation. And we have studies actually showing that endothelial function, arterial health, blood pressure, nitric oxide formation improves with collagen supplementation. So there's probably uh, something to do with the improvement in the endothelium, which is the single celled layer lining um, you know, our organs, our arteries, our in- intestines through that mechanism. So I do think that collagen has a potential to transition also to benefits to the cardiovascular system. Are there any other supplements you'd say for anyone fearing something of a, you know, inflammation, myocarditis, anything of of the cardiac nature along with collagen that you'd say, you know, look into this? Well, we talked about glycine and glutathione, which is anti-inflammatory. Vitamin C is really important. This was really interesting. So I think it was back in World War II, there was a certain group of like pacifists that refused to go. And in order for them to get out of going to war, they had to agree to be in this like two-year metabolic study of vitamin C deficiency. So these people were forced to say, okay, we're not going to fight, but we'll let you basically, you know, deplete us of vitamin C. (laughs) Well, some of the early signs was essentially coronary thrombosis from vitamin C deficiency. In other words, and I cover this in the book, there's this vitamin C collagen theory of heart disease that if you're not getting enough vitamin C, you're leading to a collagen deficiency in the heart itself. And you actually can see bleeds in the heart. And that's what you actually most, if you look on coronary autopsy, what ends up happening happening is the capillary actually bleeds. It starts bleeding, and then the clot comes from the bleed. So there are certain researchers back at even you know in the 1950s, going far as back as that, that believed that heart disease was primarily driven by basically poor capillary health, which essentially comes down to vitamin C, copper, collagen. Um, so we have we do have a whole chapter on that, which is a pretty interesting story in the book. Yeah, I mean the the book is actually it's it's not your your largest by far, you know, and and but it's concise and it really gets the data down even going back to kind of the creation of of all kind of things where it all started. 
and that those theories behind that and collagen glycine being a part of it. So it, it's an amazing book to read and it, it you know, was quick to go through. I knocked it out in a couple of days and really enjoyed it. So congrats on that. And I got to ask, uh, what's in store for your ninth? Because this was your eighth book, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Tell me what now ninth and I won't keep you like hold you to it because, yeah, I ask you this every time. Yeah, don't hold me to it. Um, <laughs> but there are things in the works for a, a cookbook based on my own Dr. James uh, meals. Mm -hmm. And that they're uh, probably what makes the most sense would be like a book on vitamins because I've done minerals. Mm. Vitamins are just a little bit less well-studied and it's actually harder of a beast to do, which minerals was just a ridiculous beast in itself. But as you said, the books have become smaller because a lot of people, they want, like you said, more concise. Let's make it, let's make it a more easy read. And that's what I'm trying to do moving forward with my books versus being like a biochemistry textbook. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, super excited for whatever comes next. I'm sure you'll knock it out in a couple of weeks, like you always do with these <laughs> and you'll be back on like within a month or so. I mean, you got the data and you have to be thinking about this for a while, but you are kind of going through this. I mean, at, at a, is, is it that you've been doing this for so long and collecting this that then yeah. it's just positioning it all around? You're not starting from scratch each book. No, most books have. So I started publishing, I, I think I published my first paper around 10 years ago. So I've been, and I have over 300 academic articles, most on nutrients and nutrition. Um, but I started out in pharmaceuticals in medicine and, and, uh, there was some drive from, uh, above to stop yeah. publishing on medications. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then yeah, it shifted me towards when I'm happy for it. I'm happy that we're um, all happy for that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. D. Nick, thank you so much for coming on your fifth time. Again, looking forward to the next book. But for now, The Collagen Cure, amazing, uh, amazing book here. So as always, it's great to get to uh, the latest research in health and nutrition from Dr. D. Nick, who scours the hard data so we don't have to. Check out this new book, The Collagen Cure, now selling on Amazon, and follow his account, Dr. James D. Nick, on Instagram. Always love your tweets on there, Doc. Until next time, continue writing your own healing story.